is so important to us even today. He starts by issuing what a, what a sober warning he begins with. That if you receive circumcision, he says, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And it's important that uh, we understand that circumcision itself was not the problem. Uh, Paul actually had Timothy circumcised uh, so he would have an effective evangelistic ministry among the Jews. So the problem was not circumcision. The problem was putting your trust in circumcision. The problem was trusting in this ceremony, this rite, this ritual as a means by which you could attain a right standing with God. And Paul says if you do that, if you get circumcised, trusting in that to save you, you are severed from Christ. Christ is of no benefit to you. You are obligated to keep the whole law. And we could substitute any good word there. We could substitute the word baptism. And we're going to have a baptism today, right? If you get baptized, trusting in that to save you, Christ is of no benefit to you. If you do good works, if you give to your neighbor, if you go to church, if you read your Bible, and you do all of those things, trusting in those things to save you, Christ is of no benefit to you. You're severed from Christ. It's either all Christ... Or it's all you. It can't be both. And if it's you, if you're going to trust in your works, Paul says you're obligated to keep the whole law. You've got to be perfect. So either you take the perfect righteousness of Christ alone, or you take your own righteousness, and we know how that works out, right? None of us have a righteousness that meets God's standard. And then at the same time, he says in verse 13, you're called to freedom, but don't use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. In other words, don't trust in your works. Don't do good deeds to save yourself. You're freed from ceremonies and laws and rituals. You're freed from all of that. And yet, in your freedom, you're not free to sin. You're not free to sin. You're free from sin. So how do we work that out? How do we avoid the extremes of legalism and yet the extremes of antinomianism? How do we avoid trying to earn our salvation, and also trying to do good deeds and live for God and live for His glory. The key is verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Live your life under the powerful influence of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God will subdue your sin and produce in you righteous longings, righteous affections, and then you will begin to be conformed to the image of Christ. So that's the key. That's the key. We walk... By the Spirit. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and uh, after we do that, we'll yet again open the Word of God and consider what He has for us in this particular portion of His Word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank You that You have given us Your Word, and it speaks to us with such clarity. We thank You for the book of Galatians. This is Paul's fiery zeal oozing out of the text. His passion for Christ, His passion for the purity of the Gospel, His love for members of the church, hoping that they do not defect from the truth and go to their own destruction. Warning them about the necessity of abiding in the true Gospel. And oh God, how we need that at this present moment. There are false Gospels on every side false gospels that would bewitch us and seduce us and lead us astray to our damnation. But we trust that, God, You will hold us fast. We trust that You would keep us from deception.
and that we would hold fast to the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we thank You, Lord, for the freedom that we have in Christ, but we long to use that freedom not as an opportunity for the flesh, not as a covering for evil, but we want to use that as an opportunity to, in love, serve one another, as an opportunity to love You and serve You and honor You. And so I pray that You would give us the help and the grace that we need to do that. Help us as Your people to walk in the Spirit. Help us to live our lives under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit by reading Your Word and devoting ourselves to prayer and communing with You so that we come under Your influence, Your grace, and are enabled and empowered by that grace to subdue the desires of the flesh and to bear the fruit of righteousness, the fruit of the Spirit, righteous attitudes and righteous conduct that brings glory to You and displays the validity of our faith. So Lord, help us to do that. Uh, Now as we open up Your Word this morning, as we work our way through some more of 1 John, this portion of Scripture that You have for us this morning, we pray that You would help us to understand this passage, help us to know what it says, to know what it means by what it says, and to know how to apply these truths to our lives so that we might live under Your glory. And it's to that end we pray all of these things. Amen. All right, well, if uh, you have a Bible, please take it and turn with me to the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, yet again. 1 John chapter 5. And for this morning, we return to the verses, or the passage that we began looking at last week, and that is verses 13 through 21. 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. A section that I've entitled... Christian absolutes. Christian absolutes. As I told you last time, the theme of this passage becomes evident through the repetition of a word there. And it is the word no. The word no. It's used like 38 or 39 times throughout the whole letter. And it's used seven times in these nine verses alone. In fact, just listen for the word as I read the passage to you. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. 
Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So as I said, the word know is used there seven times. Seven times. And a synonym of the word is used once. The word confidence in verse 14. In other words, John is telling us that there are some things as Christians that we can know. There are some things that we can be certain about. There are some things about which we can be confident. However, as I told you last week, we live in a time that we often refer to as postmodernism. Postmodernism. Postmodernism essentially calls into question everything that we've come to know and believe as Christians. The postmodern mind would tell us that there is no absolute truth. Truth isn't objective, it is subjective. It isn't fixed, it's changing. It isn't absolute, it's relative. Each person can determine for himself his own truth. I have my truth, you have your truth, but there is no absolute truth. This has massive implications. Massive implications. It has intellectual, ideological, philosophical, moral, and religious implications. Intellectually, it leads to relative truth. Morally, it leads to moral relativism. And religiously, it leads to what we could call pluralism. Pluralism. The idea that there is no one right way to God. There is no exclusivity. There's no singularity. This is the day of tolerance. This is the day of acceptance. We all have our own path. We have our own truth. And we're all going to get to the top of the same mountain. We're all going to make it to God in our own way. It becomes a sort of a cop-out. A covering for evil. A justification for any action, any belief, any worldview. I can believe whatever I want. Whatever makes me feel good is true. My desires, my longings, my reasoning, my evil lust all become the determiners of truth. Truth for me. Essentially, I accept the lie of Satan from the garden. You will be like God. I become my own God. I become the Lord of my own life. The captain of my own ship. The determiner of my own truth. The heart cry of the postmodern worldview is that there is no absolute truth. You can come to me all you want and tell me Christianity is the only way. That's true for you. It's not true for me. You can tell me that abortion's wrong, homosexuality's wrong, gender fluidity's wrong. You can say all of that, but that's your truth. It's not my truth. My truth is my truth. John's readers in the first century faced a similar problem. We know that there were some heretics there, Gnostic heretics, who were questioning all that these believers had come to know and believe. The Gnostics said that the Christians there were wrong. They didn't have the truth. The truth 
was only available to a few spiritual elite who had reached enlightenment, who had attained the secret mystical gnosis or knowledge necessary for salvation. So although they didn't deny absolute truth altogether, they denied that these Christians had that truth. They denied that it was available to them. It's only available to the spiritual elite. But here in this section, John seeks to refute that notion. John refutes that. John wants his readers to understand that not only do they have the truth, but they can be absolutely certain about that truth. They can be confident about the truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit, through this portion of Scripture, wanted the readers in the first century dealing with the lie of Gnosticism, and He wants the readers in the 21st century dealing with the lie of postmodernism to be absolutely certain about the truth. You and I can know the truth. You see, as Christians, we possess what we could call the epistemological supremacy of revelation. The epistemological supremacy of revelation. The word epistemology, it's just a fancy word that deals with how we know things. How we know things. How do we know anything is true? One question to ask any unbeliever when you're engaging with him in a conversation is a very simple question. How do you know that? You talk to an unbeliever, he says, well, I think we're reincarnated. How do you know that? What makes, what makes you think that's true? At the end of the day, they just go with the flow. They just make it up as they go. As an unbeliever, you can't even account for reasoning. You can't account for logic. You can't account for consistency in the universe. Why is the universe upheld in a law-like fashion? How come tomorrow when I throw the apple into the garbage can, it's going to fall right into the can? Why does that work? I mean, if we're in an accidental time-chance evolutionary universe, who knows what might happen tomorrow? I have no clue what's going to happen with the law of gravity in the morning. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. The toothpaste might not come out of the tube when I go to squirt it on my brush. But, because I'm a Christian, I have a worldview that accounts for that. I have a God who is rational, who created me in His image to think His rational thoughts after Him, and He is the one who not only created the universe, but upholds it by the word of His power so that I know that tomorrow the law of gravity will stay the same. I know tomorrow that the universe will still be upheld in a consistent fashion, a law-like fashion, because the God who made it sustains it. So I can know the truth. And I can know the truth because God has revealed the truth in His Word, in Holy Scripture. You see, the postmodern worldview is wrong. Intellectually, there is absolute truth. Morally, there is an absolute lawgiver and judge. And religiously, there is only one way to God, namely, Jesus Christ. And we know this because God has made it known to us in His Holy Word. So as Christians, we possess absolute truth. In a world of darkness, a world of philosophical confusion, a world of intellectual absurdity, a world of moral debauchery, a world of religious pluralism and syncretism, we can know absolute truth. We have truth because we have it from heaven. We have it from God. We have it 
in Scripture. And there are several absolute truths that you and I can know with certainty. What are some of those truths? Well, in this passage, John provides five of them. Five absolutes that you and I can be absolutely certain about. And we looked at the first two last week. Uh, This morning we'll look at the third one. In fact, I'm just going to introduce the third one this morning. And the next week we'll look at the third one in more detail. So this passage is going to take a little longer than I planned originally. That's nothing new, though. That usually happens, doesn't it? But this morning we'll start to consider that third absolute truth. But before we do that, let me remind you of the first two that we looked at a week ago. Number one, the first absolute, eternal life. Eternal life. We can know that we have eternal life. Look at verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Here John states his theme. He tells us the purpose for which he wrote the letter. To provide his readers with assurance of their salvation. To give them confidence in their spiritual condition. That they might know they have eternal life. But how do we come to know that? How do we come to know with certainty that we have eternal life? How can we know we're saved? Well, the answer is by passing the three tests of 1 John. The moral test, the doctrinal test, the social test. True Christians believe the truth about Christ, about the gospel. They obey the word of God as a pattern of life. And they love others sincerely in deed and in truth. Those who can look at themselves and examine their hearts and see faith, love, and obedience as the dominant and increasing pattern of their lives, can be confident that they have eternal life. So that's the first absolute then, eternal life. But secondly, absolute number two, answered prayer. Answered prayer. We can know that God hears and answers our prayers. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. Assurance of salvation produces confidence in prayer. If I think I'm an enemy of God, if I'm not convinced I'm saved, if I think I'm under God's wrath, I'm not going to have confidence to go to Him in prayer. But if I know that I have eternal life, if I know that God is my loving Father and I'm in a loving and saving relationship with Him, then I'm going to have confidence and boldness to approach Him at the throne of grace in prayer. Because I know that He loves me and He hears me and He answers me. God answers our prayers. Of course, there is a condition The condition here is that we ask according to His will. If we ask anything according to His will, we know that He hears us, and we know that we have the request of which we've asked from Him. If we pray according to God's will, God will hear and answer our prayers. 
But how do we do that? How do we pray according to the will of God? How do we know the will of God? The answer, we study the Word of God. We saturate our minds with biblical truth, then we know God's will, and then our prayers are guided by the Word of God, and then they're consistent with God's will. And then we can know that God hears us, and that He answers us. Because then our prayers bring glory to God. Then our prayers bring honor to Christ. And if you are praying in a way that glorifies God, I think God's going to answer your prayers. So absolute number two then is answered prayer. <clears throat> but now let me give you a third one. And uh, that will be a, the focus of our attention this morning, number three. And as I said, I'm just going to introduce it this morning. We're going to look at a little bit of it this morning, but next week we'll really dig in, or not next week, two weeks from now, we'll really dig into this one. Absolute number three, eternal security. Eternal security. We can know that God keeps us. And we see that in verses 16 through 18. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. <clears throat> Here John makes a transition from prayer to the security of the believer. And he does that by his discussion of the sin leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and then there are sins that do not lead to death. And John says, if you see your brother committing a sin that leads to death, or doesn't lead to death, pray for him. But if you see someone committing a sin that does lead to death, you shouldn't pray for him. That's clear as crystal, isn't it? That's, we get that. No, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. That's one of the difficult passages to interpret in the Bible. What is John talking about here? What does all of that mean? What's the application? John, are you saying there's people we shouldn't pray for? What does this mean for us? Well, to make proper application of this passage, we have to first properly interpret the passage. Unless we know what it means, we can't know how it applies to us. <clears throat> and so first, we have to consider what the sin leading to death is. What is that sin? Well, this morning, that's what I want to do. I want to answer that question. And I want to do it from Scripture. I want to give you a biblical, theological understanding of the sin leading to death and having given you that understanding, then next week, or next time, when we work through verses 16 through 18, we can understand clearly what John is saying to us. So what then is the sin leading to death? Well, the Greek text here could literally read the sin unto death. The sin unto death. The word translated in the NAS as leading is the Greek word pros. Greek word pros. And it has a wide range of possible meaning, but the context must determine what it means here. And in this particular context, the word could have the idea of extension towards a goal, moving toward a result. The idea is that this sin results in death. This sin ends in death. This sin leads unto death. 
Of course, all sin deserves death, doesn't it? What does Romans 6.23 say? For the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sins shall die, Ezekiel says. Those who do such things are worthy of death, Romans chapter 1 says. All sin deserves death. All sin merits death. All sin earns death. But not all sin ends in death. Right? As Christians, our sins are forgiven. Jesus died for us. He took the punishment we deserve on the cross. He died our death. And so our sins ultimately will not end in death. They end in forgiveness and eternal life. So not all sin leads to death, John says. But there is at least one sin that does. There's at least one sin that absolutely, positively ends in death. The question, of course, is what is that sin? What is that sin? Well, to answer that question, we need to have an understanding of what the Bible seeks to convey by the word death. What is death according to the Bible? We think of death as the cessation of life. Perhaps people in our culture think of death as ceasing to exist. But when the Bible speaks about death, it conveys the idea of separation. Death, in the Bible, is separation. And there are at least three forms of death mentioned in Scripture. There is what we could call physical death. There is spiritual death. And there is eternal death. Physical death is the separation of the body and the soul. James chapter 2 says the body without the spirit is dead. Right? We get that. The body without the spirit is dead. Paul defines physical death for us in Philippians. He says, I have the desire to depart and be with Christ. That's physical death. It is to depart from the body... It is to depart from the physical and material world and either to go to be with Christ in heaven or to be under His wrath in hell. So physical death then is separation from the body. However, spiritual death on the other hand is separation from God and the life of God. Separation from God and the life of God. Ephesians 4.18 says that unbelievers are excluded from the life of God. Alienated from the life of God. They do not possess His life. They are separated from divine life. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Sin alienates the sinner from God and the life of God and results in spiritual death. And that, by the way, is the condition in which all people are born. Dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We're all born in a state of alienation from God, devoid of the life of God, and at enmity with God. Unable to love Him, please Him, seek Him, come to Him, or do anything that would merit favor with Him. We are spiritually dead. But then there is eternal death. Eternal death. The Bible refers to it in Revelation chapter 20, verse 14, as the second death. And this is 
eternal separation from God and His grace, and eternal subjugation to His wrath forever in hell. Revelation 20 describes it as a place where we're tormented day and night forever and ever. That is the ultimate expression of death. Eternal alienation from God and eternal torment under His wrath forever in hell. All sin deserves that, but the good news is all sin does not lead to that. And so the question in light of all of that then is, what does John mean here by death? Is he talking about physical death or is he talking about spiritual and eternal death? Well, there have been many views set forth by the commentators. I'll, for the sake of brevity, reduce them down to the two I think are most plausible. First of all, some say that this is a reference to physical death and God's disciplining of a believer. This is the death of a believer who comes under the chastening hand of God, the fatherly displeasure of God. John MacArthur puts this forth in his commentary as an option, and here's how he defines it. It's whatever sin that is the final one in the tolerance of God. Whatever sin is the final one in the tolerance of God. He further clarifies that by saying, this sin is not one particular sin, but any sin that the Lord determines is serious enough to warrant such severe chastisement. It's any sin in the life of a believer that would lead him to physically discipline that Christian by physical death. That's a humbling reality, isn't it? God is in the business of disciplining His children, and one form of that discipline is physical death, the ending of the believer's life. So in that view, this is not spiritual death, it's physical death. It's the death of a believer. It's the death of a Christian who comes under God's chastening hand, and it's not one particular sin, but any sin that violates the tolerance of God and leads Him to discipline you with death. Perhaps one example of this in the New Testament is Ananias and Sapphira. That's the go-to, right? They're forever infamous for what happened to them. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira told one lie to the church. They sold a portion of their land and they brought the money to the apostles to give to the church. And they said that they had brought it all. That they brought the whole portion of the money. Of course, they lied. In reality, they kept some of it back. And their sin was not that they didn't give at all. They weren't obligated to give any of it. Their sin was that they lied. And God responded to that by killing them both. They both died that day. That's unbelievable, isn't it? This is the God of the Bible. This is not the God that's often painted in American evangelicalism. This is the God of Scripture who's in the business of killing people. This God kills people. And whether or not Ananias and Sapphira were true believers is debatable, but the fact is, these are people who claim to be Christians who died under the chastening hand of God for their sin. Another example of this can be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In fact, turn there with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 
Acts, Romans, and then 1 Corinthians. And the Corinthian church makes just about any church look like a glorious church by way of comparison, because this was a very troubling church. It gave Paul much heartache. The whole first book of 1 Corinthians could be outlined by a series of problems that Paul had to deal with there. There was immorality in the church. There was division in the church. There was disunity in the church. And apparently they were also taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And the result of this is that some would get to the service early and they'd eat all the food and drink all the wine and so people were drunk. Others would get there late because they wouldn't wait on them. They'd have nothing to eat, nothing to drink, and couldn't participate in the Lord's Supper and the fellowship meal that would accompany it. And so this was a problem. And in verse 29 of 1 Corinthians 11, Paul begins to summarize the problem for us. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So here's a group of believers who had taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, and the result is, they came under the chastening, disciplining hand of God. Some of them were sick, and some of them were, he says, asleep. And they're not napping, they're dead. These are people who had died under the discipline of God. Back to 1 John 5 now. So perhaps that's what John is saying here. Perhaps he's saying that this is a sin that leads God to discipline the true believer by ending his life with physical death. The Bible very clearly teaches that God does that. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10 says, He disciplines us for our good that we might share His holiness. God disciplines us to make us holy. So the idea that this is physical death of a believer under the disciplining hand of God is certainly a possibility. But I'm not convinced that that's what John is talking about here. I think John is talking about something else. And there are a few observations that lead me in a different direction in interpreting this passage. First of all, notice that John does not say that the brother is the one who commits this sin. In verse 16, he says, If anyone sees his brother, that is a true believer, a professing Christian, committing a sin not leading to death, then pray for him. But then he simply says, There is a sin leading to death, don't pray for that. He doesn't say anything about who commits the sin. He doesn't say that it's a believer, that it's a Christian, that it's a brother. Why is that? Because the true believer cannot commit this sin that leads to death. That's why. Verse 18 makes that clear. Look at verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Well, we know that people born of God do sin sometimes. But no one born of God sins the sin leading to death. No one born of God commits this sin because he who is born of God keeps him. In other words, whatever this sin is, God keeps the true believer from committing this sin. 
God preserves us from sinning the sin that leads to death. So I don't think the first interpretation is the right one. It's certainly true that God disciplines believers. It's certainly true that at times throughout history He has disciplined them with physical death. And we can prove that from other passages of Scripture. But that's not what John has in mind here. So what is he talking about? What is the sin that leads to death? We want to know that, right? You don't want to commit that sin. I don't want to commit that sin. So what is it? Well, that brings us to the second theory. And the second theory is that it's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what the sin leading to death is. We could call it final and complete apostasy. Total apostasy. It is the sin that Jesus was talking about. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, we know what Jesus said. Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Notice that Jesus seems to make the same distinction that John makes here in our text. John says there's a sin not leading to death, and there's a sin that does lead to death. Jesus says there are sins that can be forgiven, but there is a sin that cannot be forgiven. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think Jesus and John are talking about the same thing. Verse 32 further elaborates on this in Matthew 12. Jesus says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. That, by the way, encompasses all of history. All of history is either this age or the age to come. In other words, the person who blasphemes the Holy Spirit, whatever that means, has committed an unforgivable sin. He will never, ever be forgiven. Or as Mark chapter 3, verse 29 simply puts it, that person is guilty of an eternal sin. An eternal sin. So blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin that leads to sure eternal death. Now what exactly is that sin? We hear those words and we think, oh wow, so if I've said something bad about the Holy Spirit, I'm in trouble. That's not what the sin is. In the context of the Gospels, the sin referred to the Pharisees and the religious leaders attributing the works of Christ, the miracles of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ, to the work of Satan. Right? What do they say when Jesus casted out demons? They didn't say, oh wow, here's the Son of God. They said, oh no, He's doing that by the ruler of the demons. He's casting out Satan by Satan. And if someone can have such undeniable miracles before them, authenticating the identity of Jesus, and conclude that it's the work of Satan, that person has fully and finally rejected Christ and he's committed an unforgivable sin. It is a sin that leads to death. So ultimately then, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a full and final irrevocable rejection of Jesus Christ and the Gospel. It is the sin that if committed solidifies your eternal damnation. 
You see, the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit that Jesus had and the miracles that He performed was to bear witness to Him. We read about that earlier in verses 6-8, through didn't we? The Holy Spirit bears witness to Him. And if you can have that and reject that, then what else could you ask for? What further proof could you need? These people had willfully and finally rejected Christ. They had committed the unforgivable sin that leads to death. There are several other passages of Scripture that shed light on this particular sin. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6. Just a few books to the left. Hebrews 6. The writer of Hebrews writes to a group of Jews, as the name suggests, a group of Hebrews who had been tempted to turn away from the Gospel. They had been tempted to turn away from the true Gospel, go back to the Old Covenant, go back to the rituals, go back to the ceremonies of Judaism. They were tempted to apostatize from the faith. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to convince them to stand firm in Christ. And in Hebrews 6, verses 4-7, through the writer describes the same sin that John and Jesus talk about. Look at verse 4. Verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, by the way, this doesn't mean they're saved. They've been enlightened. Intellectually, they had come to understand and believe the truth, professingly. They had tasted the heavenly gift. That is to say, they sampled it. They had come into the church, under the ministry of the Word of God, in the presence of true believers. They had been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, not in the sense that he, they were regenerated, not in the sense that the Spirit lived within them, but in the sense that they had been among the ministry of the Spirit. Some of them had probably seen the apostolic miracles of the Spirit. They had sat under the ministry of the Word, which is a ministry of the Spirit. Verse 5, And have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, apostatized after all of this. Turn away from Christ after all of this. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. If they can come that close to the brink of salvation and then fully and finally leave the truth, there's no way to bring them to repentance. There's no way to bring them back. These people were false converts, apostates, who had committed the unforgivable sin. No way to bring them back to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. They agree with His enemies that Jesus is a false Messiah who deserves to die. They crucify Him. They reject Him. People who heard the Gospel, people who had seen the work of the Spirit in the lives of true Christians, involved in the local church, only to turn away once and for all. What a sad reality. Some of us know people that have done that. We know people who started off well only to leave the truth. And if they can do that, John, or the writer of Hebrews says, there's no way to bring them back to repentance. This is final apostasy. The point of no return. They had sinned away the day of grace. They had been judicially hardened. 
they had rejected the influence of the Holy Spirit to such a degree that their hearts were hardened so that repentance was no longer possible. What a scary reality. That's the unforgivable sin. A full, complete, and final apostasy. A full and final rejection of Jesus Christ is the sin that leads to death. Hebrews 10 gives us a little more insight. Go to Hebrews 10 now. Hebrews 10. The writer is dealing with the same issue here, the same sin, the sin of apostasy, a rejection of Christ in the Gospel, and he talks about that starting in verse 26. Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and again, the sin here is apostasy, rejecting Christ and His Gospel. After having received the knowledge of the truth, after having once been enlightened, it's the sin of impenitence and unbelief after hearing the truth. If you go on willfully in that sin, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, verse 27, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. If you reject Christ, there is no other sacrifice for your sin. You've rejected the only Savior, and you have solidified your condemnation. The cross, which was meant for salvation, becomes for you condemnation. Because you've rejected the Savior who died upon it. Verse 28, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has, here it goes, insulted the Spirit of grace. To blaspheme the Spirit is the same as insulting the Spirit of grace. It's to reject the Spirit's testimony about Christ and the Gospel. And described here as trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant. That's what the unforgivable sin is. Verse 30, For we know Him who said, Vengeance is Mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the sin leading to death. A full and final rejection of Jesus Christ that brings us into the hands of the living God for final and eternal judgment. Back to 1 John 5 now. This option makes the most sense in light of the context of 1 John. Remember, John is dealing with a group of heretics, false teachers, who are seeking to deceive the Christians there And these false teachers had committed the sin of apostasy. Remember 1 John 2.19 says of these antichrists that they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out to show that they are all not of us. They started in the church, they professed to believe the truth, only to leave that truth and defect from Christ. They had committed the sin leading to death. They had rejected Christ. 
John makes that clear throughout the letter, doesn't he? They're the ones who deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They're the ones who deny that He was the Son of God. They're the ones who do not have the Son and therefore they do not have the life. They rejected the only Savior, committed the unforgivable sin, and had solidified their own damnation. Commenting on this passage, Daniel Aiken says this, This is the sin of the false teachers who willfully and habitually oppose the witness of God concerning the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Then he adds, This one is not called a brother. He is an apostate. That's exactly right. This isn't the sin of a believer. It's the sin of a false Christian, a non-believer who rejects the Savior. Edmund Hebert adds, The false teachers manifested the spirit of Antichrist separated themselves from the true church, and perverted or rejected the apostolic message of redemption in Christ. In deliberately rejecting the incarnate Son of God, in whom eternal life is available, they committed themselves to a spiritual attitude and course of action that could only be characterized as sin unto death. That's it. MacArthur says this sin is a full and final rejection of Jesus Christ as that committed by the Pharisees when they attributed His miracles to Satan. And he said, that kind of apostasy is unforgivable. That's the sin. That's what John has in mind. A full, final rejection of Jesus Christ and the Gospel that ends in eternal death. R.C. Sproul adds to our understanding of the sin very sober words. He says, When the Holy Spirit's influence is deliberately and knowingly refused in opposition to the light, then the irreversible sin can be committed as a voluntary informed act of malice. In response, there is a hardening of the heart from God that rules out the possibility of repentance and faith. Those are scary words, aren't they? Scary words that we can resist the Holy Spirit's influence, external influence through the ministry of the Word to such a degree that God will harden our hearts and salvation and repentance is no longer possible. What a scary reality. Hebrews 3, 12-14 says, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. What a warning. That perhaps there is within you an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from God. A heart that is hardened by sin. And one safeguard against that sin, the writer of Hebrews says, is that we encourage one another day after day. In other words, one preventative measure against the hardening of our heart is the context of the local church. The community of the saints. You reject that, 
It starts there. You get out of the local church. You get away from the means of grace. You get away from the people of God. Your heart becomes increasingly hardened by sin. And then ultimately it leads to final apostasy, defection, and the sin leading to death. So may we not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. May we gather as often as we can with the people of God to encourage one another, to be under the means of grace, and to take whatever measure we can within our disposal to prevent the hardening of our heart. You have that responsibility. We have a healthy confidence and yet a healthy fear, don't we? The writer of Hebrews says you should fear. If you're a believer, God keeps you. You can look in your life and see evidence that you belong to Him. But, if that changes, you fall away from the truth, you defect from Christ, all of that proves it was fake in the first place. You were never of the truth to begin with. And so we have a responsibility to guard our hearts and to do whatever we can to prevent it from being hardened by sin. terrifying to think that we could sin in such a way and resist the Spirit's ministry in such a degree that repentance becomes impossible. That's what happened to Esau. Hebrews 12.17 says he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. Wow. He forfeited the birthright, gave up the blessing. He was sorrowful for it, but not repentant. Could never get it back. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, perhaps you'll do that. Perhaps you'll sin away the day of grace so that your heart becomes hardened to the point of no return. Perhaps today is the last chance you'll get to hear the Gospel. And even if God does allow you to live many more years, perhaps today is the day as you reject that truth, He'll harden your heart judicially so that repentance is no longer possible. Perhaps that could happen today. What does that mean? It means, as Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent and believe in Christ and to continue in Christ. Today is the day to get right with God. The idea that I'll just do it next week or in ten years and then God hardens your heart today and the ten years never comes. Those who hear the most truth and persistently reject it are in danger of hardening their hearts and committing this unforgivable sin. So today, repent. Come to Christ. Believe the Gospel. Continue in Him and God will forgive all of your sins. It's good news. All of your sin. None of your sin will lead to death because the Savior will have covered them all. What good news. Well, that's what John means by the sin leading to death. It is a full and final rejection of Jesus Christ that solidifies our damnation. Resisting the Spirit's testimony to Christ in the Gospel. And now, with this biblical understanding of this sin next time, we can work through verses 16 through 18 and understand precisely what John is telling us. And that's exactly what we'll do next time. So, you want to know, can the believer commit this sin? What is their application? Who do we pray for? Who do we not pray for? You'll have to come back 
in two weeks to learn that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for both its encouragement and its warnings. And We heard a warning this morning, a warning about hardening our hearts, a warning about committing the sin leading to death, the sin of final apostasy and rejection of the Savior. Lord, I pray that there would not be in any of us an evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. I pray that You would keep us, as Your Word says You will. That You would preserve us. Oh, what a danger, Lord, that we start with getting out of the local church and getting out of the Word and getting out of the means of grace, thinking it's all okay, and then our heart becomes increasingly hardened by sin and by the enticements of the world to the point where we just turn away from Christ altogether. Oh God, that You would keep us from that. And oh, that we would take every preventative measure possible to keep our hearts from being hardened. And we rejoice in the fact that for our sin, for us who are believers, none of our sin leads to death. Because it led Christ to death. He bore the punishment for us. And now in Him we have eternal life. We thank You for that, Lord. Help us to live in the fullness of that life and we look forward to the final expression of it when Christ returns and brings us to glory. And until then, we pray that glory and honor and dominion would be Yours forever. Amen.